men are more likely to need to seek help for addiction and they're more likely to die as a result of suicide. And I think what that tells us is that whilst women are talking, being heard, being understood and being diagnosed, which won't necessarily mean they get the help that they need, but that's at least a start, men are self-medicating and then reaching crisis point. Yep. And I was, I was seeing all of these men's mental health campaigns which were saying, men, just talk. And that struck me as slightly victim blaming actually, because it's a bit like saying, fat people, eat less. It's like, well, if they could, they would. Hi guys, I'm Alex Holmes, and this is Time to Talk. On Time to Talk each week, I speak to experts in their field about how we can be more compassionate, more wholehearted and more open with ourselves and others and what this means for the mental health question and the way we live today. Today, I have mental health campaigner Natasha Devon in the compassion seat. She is a campaigner and broadcaster who tours schools, universities and events delivering talks and conducting research on mental health and related issues like body image, sexuality and gender. She's also the author of A Beginner's Guide to Being Mental and Yes You Can, Ace Your Exams Without Losing Your Mind. And she's also the host of the Staying Sane podcast. In this conversation, we talk about her career in campaigning and the combination of politics, mental health, ed- education, and journalism. We speak about her illustrious story of being a mental health champion for the Department of Education, of which she was subsequently fired for being too publicly critical of the austerity and education policy in 2016. And we also talk about integrity in these spaces and standing up for what is right. Earlier this year, Natasha invited me to sign the Mental Health Media Charter. It is a pledge for broadcasters and journalists to commit to discussing and reporting stories relating to mental health responsibly, helpfully, and in a way that takes into account the needs of the most vulnerable members of the population. This was important to me as a writer and as a former news journalist. Having worked in high-pressure environments, we tend not to take care of the people who suffer the most. It is a charter for a much more compassionate approach to mental health reporting and journalism, and it is why I am pleased to have Natasha as both a friend and guest today on Time to Talk. As per, make sure you rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and share with your friends, and guys, stay encouraged. So without further ado, let's welcome Natasha to Time to Talk. Welcome to Time to Talk with Alex Reed. I'm so happy to have you here um, with me today. And especially, you know, all the stuff that's happening in the world and everything is jumbled up and everybody's feeling some kind of way about everything. Um, I wanted to start with how are you feeling today? Um, I feel... I've really got into the swing of the whole post-lockdown situation and I was when lockdown first happened because I have a lot of nervous energy as someone with an anxiety disorder I got so used to channeling that into perpetual motion I was always going somewhere I was always on a train I was always at an event and I never really stopped and so when we had enforced lockdown I panicked a little bit thinking all of that energy is going to turn inwards and it's going to become really self-destructive 
And that hasn't happened. So I feel safe right now, but also a bit apprehensive about going back to the new normal. And, you know, I was talking to another mental health campaigner about this today, about how many mental health issues are being stored up and will make themselves mm. known when we go back to school or back to work or, or whatever it is. And as, a, as somebody who wants to help people, you kind of feel like the enormity of the task is quite overwhelming. Mm. So it's a it's a bit kind of um, I don't want to say I don't want to say the word distressing because I don't like using that in that in the wrong context. But it's um, it's putting you a bit on edge, sort of things. It's kind of in all of that. Um, what's the, what's the anxiety disorder? If you don't mind me asking for um, it's, purposes of it's the show. panic disorder, which <laughs> just means that I'm really good at having panic attacks. It's one of my main skills oh, in life, um, and <laughs> they. It, I think that the thing that's most un, uh, misunderstood about all anxiety disorders, but particularly panic disorder, is that I'm able to do things that make other people really nervous. Um, for example, public speaking doesn't really bother me, going on live TV. Mm. Yeah, I go to parliament all the time. I tell off politicians. I'm fine with all of that. But then on a day where I'm feeling particularly anxious, it will take something so small, like if, say I'm in the toilet and the first time I try to open the door, it doesn't open. Or um, a friend hasn't texted me back after I've sent them a text. Or it's just mm. these really pedestrian mm. things that can set me off. Having said that, I've, you know, mm. I've, I've got good at managing it and, and I've learned how to, mm. to keep a lid on it, but that's my official diagnosis. Mm. Mm -hmm. When did that show up in kind of your experience in your life? Well, there's kind of two answers to that question. Um, I, I wasn't diagnosed mm. until I was 31, which was eight okay. years ago now, but with the knowledge that I have now, looking back on my life, I realized that I've been having panic attacks since I was about 10, but they kept being misdiagnosed. Um, initially, they thought I had asthma, then it was allergies, because you have to remember this, this was 1991 when I was 10 and panic attacks hadn't been invented mm. yet. <laughs> Mental health wasn't a thing. Mm. Um, so, so nobody yeah, yeah. really understood that it could be a kind of physical symptom with a psychological cause. So there was about 20 years of my life where I just thought I was less good at dealing with the realities of life than other people were. And it was such a relief to get the diagnosis and to start medication and to plug myself into a community of other people who have panic disorder and learn about their coping strategies. So I always think you can't fight an opponent if you don't know what that opponent is. Mm -mm -mm. it's an invisible invisible battle isn't it sort of thing because a lot of people are that's what they say about a lot of mental health stuff it's like you just because you can't see them on the surface it's it doesn't mean they're not happening to people and they're not you know it's not and not doesn't mean that it's not as important as um, a physical wound or a physical condition um but okay uh, what is a quote that has carried you this far and that you find to be of comfort? I think there's there's two quotes that spring to mind when you ask me that question. So I think the quote that has got me through a lot of tough times is just this too shall pass. I think the idea that nothing is forever and 
that you know life is peaks and troughs and however bad things are it it will inevitably change i think that's massively comforting but the quote that keeps the momentum going in terms of my campaigning and wanting to change things is um jiddu krishnamurti this is probably my favorite quote of all time and it's um it is no indication of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society but it's true it's true it's a measure of health to be well adjusted to profoundly sick society and what what do you take from that that's sometimes you're not mad (laughs) that actually (laughs) it's a completely understandable and natural reaction to an environment that isn't right and i don't think it's any coincidence Mm. that some of the demographics in society that have the highest instances of mental illness are also the ones that are Mm -hmm. most likely to experience prejudice and discrimination and poverty and poor housing and um you know i I also don't think it's a coincidence that we've seen the steady increase in mental health issues since 2010 since austerity when the number of people for whom society was no longer serving them has grown Mm -hmm. and and that's why you know when you're a mental health campaigner inevitably it politicizes you and then you get really angry when people say stop making things political because Everything is political. It's inherently political. Yeah, life is politics. Yeah. yeah, life is politics. When did you start getting into campaigning? Where did that story begin? Well, I originally, I started going into schools when I was 27, which was 12 years ago now. Mm-hmm. And my original idea was I wanted to change the way that we approach mental health lessons in school because I had mental health education in secondary school. But it was very much focused on severe mental illness. So we had these people who would come in, outside speakers, who had experience of, uh, let's say, drug addiction or anorexia. And they would come in and tell their story in this really engaging way. And they were great. You know, I still remember Mm -hmm. those assemblies. But what I didn't do was I didn't apply what they were saying to myself because I didn't think it was relevant to me. I just Mm -hmm. thought nothing like that will ever happen to me. And um, I wanted to try and universalize it a little bit more and to say to to children, everybody has mental health in the same way as everyone has physical health. And it's something you Mm -hmm. can keep an eye on, you know, monitor, nurture in just the same way as you do things for your physical health, like eat right and exercise and, and drink water. So I I ended up, um, because I thought, you know, even at 27, I felt so far removed from the life of teenagers. I thought, I have actually, I have no clue what I'm doing. So so I went and I Mm. (laughs) I interviewed um, about 500 teenagers. um, And I asked them, amongst other things, what's missing from your PSHE program? That's personal health and social education. You know, what would you like to learn more about? And it was great because the answers they gave me were exactly the kinds of things I was looking for, those day-to-day mental health challenges. So things like body image and exam stress and social media and um, bullying and friendship issues. Um, So I originally, I consulted with some experts to come up with lesson plans on those topics and started taking them into schools. And then it was being in schools and seeing, first of all, the huge discrepancy in the resourcing funding and therefore the quality of the education that young people are receiving Mm. and that's not just between 
private schools and state schools, that's you can have two comprehensives that are a mile away from each other where there is a, a huge discrepancy um, because all of the funding seems to go to the schools that have the, the best academic records, which makes no sense yeah. at all. It, if anything, it should be the other way around. Um, and that was really what first got me interested in politics. And then, of course, the more time I spent around young people, um, the more uh, the more woke I became. Essentially, and now, now I'm, yeah. I am fully awakened. <laughs> you mentioned that you were fired from the government. Mm-hmm. Now, so now, so on one side, you've got I'm entering um, politics, I'm, I'm campaigning and doing all these things and all of that stuff, and then on the other side, it's like, well, this happened, sort of thing. But what was that? What was the story behind that? And kind of like, where did that come? From? Was it a thing? Was it? Is it just an acrimonious kind of like? Outsting, or were you just say I'm I'm done with all of this? It took actually writing about it chronologically in my book to actually yeah. help me make sense of everything that had occurred because it was the the world of Westminster and politics is just strange anyway. And then for somebody with <laughs> yeah. sort of no background in that and and who wasn't versed in the protocol to just be dropped into this world, it, it was it was like going through the looking glass. But essentially what happened was I got a call out of the blue from the Department of Education saying that they were looking for a mental health champion for schools and they thought that I would be great for the role, which did make me think maybe somebody hasn't done their homework because this was while Nikki Morgan was education secretary, but the the previous education secretary, Michael Gove and I had not seen eye to eye. And I'd been very vocal about that. And Mm. I'd written about that. Mm. Um, And I thought, do they, do they know? (laughs) I am. Um, And clearly they didn't. (laughs) But then, you know, I I spoke to them about it and they said, there's a lot of scope here to define yourself, what the role is. And you can essentially be a bridge between schools and and government, you know, bring the concerns that you're seeing on the ground day to day to government level. And I thought, whatever my views are about the Conservative Party, and they're generally not positive, Mm -hmm. it would be really churlish to turn down this opportunity because this is an opportunity to get inside the tent where the real change happens. Mm-hmm. So I accepted the role. And um, nine months later, <laughs> after, you know... A, a, a whole baby a was whole, been born. A whole <laughs> new person was created, yeah, <laughs> in exactly the right time frame. Um, yeah. So much had happened, but... Um, I was, and, and I think that this was what offended me the most about the way I was let go was not that I was let go because to be honest, I had been expecting that from pretty much day one. It was the way they did it. So they called me into a meeting and they said, um, you know, you've done such a great job as mental health champion and we really appreciate all of your work, but we are going to be creating the role of a, a cross department salaried mental health champion because I wasn't paid because it was important that I remain impartial yeah so they said we want to create a paid contracted salaried role for somebody who would work across all the government departments which would essentially render your role obsolete that's how they did it and then they said (laughs) oh and and they didn't necessarily phrase it in this way but the implication was very much Mm. and if you go quietly 
we'll throw some sweeteners into the mix. So they were talking about, you know, getting me a column in a, a women's weekly glossy magazine and working with Nikki Morgan on um, sexism and misogyny, which is, you know, an, another big passion of mine. And she was the Minister for Women and Equalities at the time. So they kind of chucked all these sweeteners in. Okay. And I thought, nah. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Yeah. it went to The Guardian and yeah, it all blew up. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, uh, just going to go left and, um, you know, just going to amplify this. But you know what? And then that's it. It just raises some questions about just, just in general. It's like, you know, when when politics comes into things and it starts to really just kind of attach itself to your, not your identity, but your your passion, your, your, your calling in a sense. I mean, you've been working, you're working in this space, you were on the ground doing the work. You know, you get presented with an opportunity to, you know, actually actively make change at the government level, the party that you necessarily affiliate yourself with, but then you go in and it just it pans out the exact way that you thought it would pan out, and you know, and then they try to oust you, just kind of like you know, because the thing is, even with that, it wouldn't it would it wasn't even a oh, we're going to make your role salaried now. It was a uh, we're making it salaried. And somebody else is going to get, get the role. And you're just, all the work that you've done is just being kind of like obsolete. So go sort of thing. And, and, I, and I, I always find that interesting because a lot that happens to a, so many people so many times. And that's when they leave ending up jaded and going to The Guardian and, and like exposing all, all, of these, all of these things. So, and how did you Tell turn you that around? Tell you what was the most, for me, the most disillusioning thing was not <laughs> the way they handled themselves so much as the ineptitude. So I did a freedom of information yeah. request. I, I have to give a shout out actually to the then editor at BuzzFeed who just gave me the best advice on how to get the, this documentation because unless you phrase it in a very specific way, they can refuse to give it to you. But I yeah. ended up getting my hands on this dossier of printouts which had every time my name was mentioned in any official documentation, even if it was a telephone transcript wow. at government level. And actually that... Oh that dog <laughs> is covered in brown stains because I was eating a cornetto as I read it and my mouth kept dropping open <laughs> because I was so shocked oh my <laughs> by what I was, was reading. Um, it, was, it, it wasn't so much, you know, I, I, I knew it was so transparent that they had been sort of trying to think of ways to get rid of me from very early on. It was the, the thick of itness of it. I, I didn't realise how accurate yeah. that show was before and the way they speak to each other and you think these people are in charge and that was the most yeah. terrifying thing. <laughs> so all that being said, what is your kind of what's your perspective on it like on on it now? Like, you know, obviously these things these things make us into kind of like mm. who we are today. I know you're still doing amazing work and you're still pushing pushing through education and trying to make sure that people are uh, awareness is being raised in the realm of mental health and we'll get onto the men and boys coalition in a minute but in all of that how is that like what did that experience teach you I think it, it taught me that in order to progress up the political ladder you have to mm. sacrifice a bit of your integrity each time you progress. And that was where the, the tension arose. So, you know, you look at 
um, you know, somebody who's made Secretary of State, for example, one of the first things that tends to happen after the announcement is people look at their voting record and they say, mm-hmm. well, you know, how can you possibly be Minister for Health when you voted against a pay rise for NHS workers, for example, back, you know, five years ago? But what, and whilst that's legitimate, I think what's misunderstood is that that person would never have made it to the role of Secretary of State if they hadn't towed the party line and gone with the party whip to get them to that point. And I really saw that during my time in Westminster. And then, of course, you had Jeremy Corbyn, who was the antithesis of that. This guy is, had a, you know, a completely clean voting record. He'd never gone against his beliefs. And that wasn't right either. I, I mean, it, J- Jeremy Corbyn was, I think, very interested in getting me on board. And I always kind of kept, kept that aspect of the Labour Party at arm's length because of anti-Semitism and because of my concerns about any kind of extremity when it comes to to politics. Um, so I, it made me realise that the system is fundamentally broken because local MPs of no matter what flavour, usually they go into that role with the best intentions because they want to help people on the ground at a grassroots level. Mm. And then the system corrupts them. So it's the system that needs to change. So until that happens, I'm kind of on the fringes trying to influence things where hmm. I can. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's, yeah, and that, that's another thing. I mean, we've been, and like lately, we've been hearing a lot about systemic things. Um, and, and, and what frustrates me the most is that, you know, these aren't anything new. These aren't new conversations these really are new conversations. I'm seeing videos. I spend a lot of time in Instagram TV. Um, like in my in my Discover page, I think it's the most amazing place for me. It just has all the it, like. I've got loads of throwback '90s videos, and it's just great. And it just it just, it just keeps me entertained when I'm and we're like really really bored. But um, but within there, there are so many conversations that I've been like that are being had, and when they're dating back to like 1993, and I've said certain things that these people are saying in 1993. I was two. So if you're there, if I'm like a child, a baby, not really cognizant of too much language, and like, you know, how many years later I'm saying the exact same things and how many years ago this is all being said and it's still being said. And then, you know, people are rising up and, you know, with all the, all that's happening with COVID and what's happening with Black Lives Matter and all these things, it just becomes, becomes exasperating. It is exhausting. I know. I know what you mean, actually, because I watched a documentary the other day about Richard Pryor, and there was a, a part where okay, he was yeah. talking about police brutality and uh, being more likely to be stopped as a black man. And I was like, "This was what forty years ago, and we're still having mm. the conversation." And I think that that's one yeah. of the main enemies of activism is actually exhaustion. <laughs> Because you can, you know, you just, yeah. and the way that change yeah. happens, it's in increments. You, you don't tend to generally mm. see a kind of revolution that changes things overnight. You, you win small victories and then eventually you get to a point where mm. you look back and you go, I can't believe we ever thought that was okay. At the time yeah. when you're making yeah. those changes, it doesn't feel like you're getting mm. anywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's true. It is absolutely true. But, um, before we get into kind of like speaking a bit around, you know, your book, uh, A Beginner's Got to Be a Mentor, 
Um, I wanted to. I did want to ask you about the like allyship and the men and boys coalition. I don't know if they go hand in hand together, but um, yeah, what kind of what got you interested in? If you're going to explain what the men and boys coalition is first and foremost to people that don't know, but and what got you interested in that? The men and boys coalition is an incredibly broad church of people who are loosely united, I would say, by a, a desire to help. Um, boys and men with the issues that affect them but there's I would say I'm very much on sort of one one side of the curve in terms of who makes up the coalition because I would say I'm one of the maybe two or three people within it who identifies as a feminist and I don't for example buy into the rhetoric around working class white boys attainment in education meaning anything because it only ever is used by mm-hmm, by mm-hmm. racists who want to pretend that racism doesn't exist and um there is some yeah. there is a crossover i think between um a, a kind of men's activism and right wingism which I, and i'm definitely not in, in that crossover <laughs> uh, the reason yeah. i'm part of the coalition is is simply because when it comes to particularly suicide, but also addiction, men are much more vulnerable to those particular mental health issues. And when you look at the statistics, women are about three times more likely to receive a diagnosis of mild to moderate conditions like anxiety and depression. Men are more likely to need to seek help for addiction and they're more likely to die as a result of suicide. And I think what that tells us is that whilst women are talking, being heard, being understood and being diagnosed, which won't necessarily mean they get the help that they need, but that's at least a start. Men are self-medicating and then reaching crisis point. And I was, I was seeing all of these men's mental health campaigns, which were saying, men, just talk. And that struck me as slightly victim blaming, actually, because it's a bit like saying fat people eat less. It's like, well, if they could, they would. Their life, which means yeah. that they're unable to do these things. So I became re- really right. interested in speaking to, to young men in schools and trying to find out what it was about their lives and their environment, which was preventing them from either speaking or being heard when they did. And I, and I collected enough data that I thought it would be of use. And that's when Dr. Ben Hine, who is one of the experts that I consult with, he's co-founder of the, mm. of the organization. And that's when he told me about it. Okay. Okay. No, you're right about the, the self-medication thing. And, um, and like when I'm at my low, I keep, I'm at my lowest, I will find that bottle of rum and I will make every concoction that could that is known to man <laughs> and just be like oh this could go with a lemon today because i'm feeling like a bit you know but i mean in all seriousness it's just kind of like um i mean but when i i didn't realize that and then when i once i realized what that was and i started observing my friends and observing the people that were around me and like when my dad is low i can see it because of the actions and the, the activities that he ends up partaking in when as when my friends are and stuff um it's just the way that you know kind of like we kind of digress into certain conversations about certain things or you know there are actions that i had like regards to you know over either overeating or having a drink or something like that just to kind of like suck up the emotional 
element of it because there is no conversation there. And I think it's one of the reasons I started the podcast as well because it was just a convers- there were conversations that needed to be had. But I, but you're right about I didn't like the whole, all right, just talk mm. sort of thing. And it's the, you know, and you know I see it everywhere, and it does kind of it does make me feel some kind of way because I'm like, we can't just be like, oh, just talk, but we we need to look at what is going on and what what kind of conversations you want people to be having then because usually when people do say those things it's really out of I want them to talk to me <laughs> about all the stuff that they're going through so that I can then feel better for them speaking to me and it's all this really weird kind of like this 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 back and forth um and I think that's, that there's a level of compassion there that ne- that's needed um, so something like the Men and Boys Coalition is something that you know we can see a huge, huge value in, um, and, and we need to have that. I mean, I get messages a lot of the time. People can't speak to. Them. I'm not a psychologist or psych or psychotherapist or counselor or any of those things. Um, and somebody's just like, oh, you know, we um, uh, I can't can't talk to my son. I can't talk to the young people. And when I when I'm like, okay, that's a bit upsetting that you can't speak to them. What's going on? And then a lot of the time, I'm just like, but. When I, when I hear the full kind of like reasons, I'm like, there might not be anything that A, there might not be anything wrong with them, but B, it just might, might be how we're approaching conversation and how we're kind of like bringing, bringing that together. And if it does come across as if, you know, it's kind of like on people's cases or kind of like, again, as you said, victim blaming and doing all these different things, people are going to be more likely to reject it, especially if you're not used to and people want a quick fix they want to crack that nut so so often when I'm doing parent talks and they're talking about their sons they say I know something's Mm. wrong can you give me a trick to make him tell me and and I'm thinking well you're you're fighting a, a lifetime of indoctrination which has probably told your son that to share is weakness um that yeah people who are strong sort out their problems by themselves that he has to be stoic and the answers that i give i can see them being disappointing because i'll say you know it's it's not actually talking in of itself that has the proven therapeutic value it's connection so how are you going to connect with your child is that an activity that you enjoy doing together for example and what you will find is eventually when you are consistent in doing those activities where you connect he'll start to open up to you probably (laughs) but it's not going to happen tomorrow yeah Yeah, it's 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 relationship building relationship building and you know and it's and that's natural we don't open up to people we don't trust <laughs> and you know and and it's, it's that thing within families or whatever where you know by virtue of you being my blood you must trust me sort of thing and it's just a bit like well you know all everything needs to be worked worked up to form a, a mutual kind of understanding of respect so and then that kind of brings me on to allyship then because i mean in your book you know, you've got, it's called the Beginner's Guide to Being Mental. I'm not sure where this video is going to go, but it's here. I'm just praying everybody. Um, and um, when did you write this? 2018? Yeah. 2017, yeah. So, you know, you've got like a, you've got a, a comprehensive kind of like lit, um, let's from A to Z, A to Z, A to Z. And, um, you know, and you break down particular elements of kind of like just parts of mental health and other things around life just kind of under certain um under certain 
letters. I can't speak under certain letters. And um, yeah, you, you speak about you know black mental health. You speak about queer mental health. You speak about you know women. You speak about everything. But what kind of brought you to? What kind of brought you together to kind of? Because it's very, it's a very clever way to kind of like get people to. Because you, if somebody can just say anxiety, and then just go a, and just be like, is it here sort of thing, or you know what I mean? What kind of brought you together to to write this book? And um, yeah, and. Let's answer that first. What brought you together to write this book? I wanted to literally get everybody on the same page <laughs> because there, there's such a mm. massive gap in emotional literacy, particularly amongst young people and their parents, I would say. They understand the world in such different mm. ways. And the, the way the book is written is each letter is either a mental health condition or something that's related to mental health. So C is capitalism, for example. Mm. But the way it's written, it, it follows the same formula as my talks in schools. So we do, first of all, I talk about if in any way that the topic is related to me and my life or anybody that I've met on my travels around the UK. Then we do the science, what's actually happening in your brain and the evidence. Mm. And then there's the takeaway tips. How does this apply to your life? What can you do um, in order to, to make this better? So it's, each chapter is divided yeah. into those three distinct sections. And um, with the allyship, so it's <laughs> it's interesting being me um, <laughs> because I, uh, <laughs> so my, my dad is brown and my stepdad is black. Now my mum married my stepdad when I was five and I didn't see my dad from when I was about three. So I'm mm -hmm. of mixed heritage, but look white. Being raised mm -hmm. by an African man with mixed race brothers. <laughs> and yep. my cousins were like, wow, you're like James Bond. You're, you're telling us all these things that white people are saying behind our backs that we never would have known. And, and then, of course, I mean, since I wrote the book, when I wrote the book, I wasn't quite sure if I should define as bisexual or not because um, the, the number of women that I've had sex with is much smaller than the number of men I've had sex with. And then I thought about it more and I was like, that's a stupid way to measure it. So now I just say I'm bisexual, yeah. but I'm, in a, uh, I'm yeah. in a heterosexual marriage. So if you, you put all that together, you, what I have is, I guess, insight, but a hell of a lot of privilege as well. And I thought I have to yeah. use that in some way. I have to um, use my privilege in a way that elevates the communities that I've been part of. And so that's where I thought it was so important to mention the way that sexuality, gender and race intersect with mental health mm. because it's not often acknowledged. It certainly wasn't in 2018. It just wasn't acknowledged within mm. the conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, two points on from that. But first things, what did you kind of notice, in, you know, you said, like, as a mixed person, but obviously passing mm. white, but um, what was that like, you know, d acknowledging the mental health kind of impacts of, I say, I guess it'd be racial trauma on like your siblings and then, you know, through your stepdad and then even, I don't know, I don't know whether you ended up forming a relationship with your biological dad, but, um, but you know, what did you kind of see through that, through, through your eyes in a sense? And then kind of where, where did you... I think it, uh, my first memory of being pulled over 
by a police officer. I was about five. Mm. My parents, my mum and stepdad weren't married yet. They were just dating. And a police officer pulled us over and just uh, took my stepdad's details. Uh, but we, it was took a really long time and then we headed off. And mm. I remember my mum saying, the reason that that happens is because he's a black man in a nice car and the police officer thought he'd done something wrong. And I went, oh, because I was five, right? So I just went, okay, that's how the world works. And then as I got older, I not only became angry about it myself, I started to notice the way that that anger, which has to be consistently repressed, was impacting my stepdad because it's when when those constant injustices and microaggressions and like even uh, he came to see me do I was really into debating at school and he came to see me in a debating final and the guy it was in this big posh school and the headmaster of this posh school my stepdad walked in and he went up to him and went oh so I assume you're here to pick up are you he thought it was a taxi driver and he said to him no I'm here to watch my daughter speak and as soon as she speaks you'll know exactly who she is which put quite a lot of pressure on me but um, (laughs) to win the damn thing but it's like those microaggressions that happen day after day after day I could see him like Mm. absorbing those and over time that does impact really fundamentally who you are and it's Mm -hmm inevitable then that that affects you know me and my stepdad did not always see eye to eye there was a there was a lot of tension because um you bring that home don't you 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 bring the environment home yeah 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 um but how was that kind of resolved was that something that was just like you know it was just one of those things that was just kind of over time that was just like level out or was it did it cause quite a few ruptures? I think I understand him better now. Mm. I'm older. Um, I think at the t- I think as well. The other thing that was uh, when I was kind of coming of age was the the early two thousands, mm. and it was when hip hop culture, particularly American hip hop culture, really permeated the British market. So we, there was, you know, there was the box, there was Kiss FM, there were all all the clubs were playing like early Beyonce and all of that. So it it was, it was really, (laughs) particularly as we grew up in a predominantly white area, it was really Mm. cool to be black. Right. (laughs) And that, and that had an impact on me because I, I was, because I think my brothers were a bit like, look, I'll, because uh, they're so good natured. They really, are. I've never seen them angry in their life. And they were pretty much like, they were getting high fived in the street. I'm like, do you know that person? No, but they're like, do you know what? Life's too short. I'm just going to take any good naturedness where I can find it. And again, I was really yeah. angry about it. Cause yeah. I'm like, so these people who were mean to me at school because of who my stepdad was suddenly want to be associated with my family. And it, it, yeah, it just caused, um, I, I, I guess, in retrospect, quite a lot of tension because we didn't understand where the other one was coming from on it, and we didn't know we didn't know yeah, how yeah, to talk was, about it. Yeah, yeah, a perspective shift, perspective shift. Um, those early two thousands. I mean, what was that? I don't even know what, what business I had remembering any of that. I was ten, <laughs> so 
um, yeah, MTV Bass and 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 all of those things. And I mean, I can categorically say that I, race wasn't a a huge that factor for me. I mean, I watched MTV Bass, I watched Trouble TV, I watched all these shows that had black people in it. So I was very much like, they're black, I'm black. This is kind of what it is. It wasn't until I got to I guess it wasn't until I got to school um, and like end of school and kind of going into sixth form university that I became very aware of like my blackness outside of me being Jamaican, you know. So it was kind of all of these different different things. But it's funny how you know certain things are kind of presented to you in a in a particular way, and it just happened that yours was, you know, by way of just having this stepdad who and and you both had you know different perspectives on all of these different things, and you know, and the anger the anger of the, of the injustices but just not kind of aligning with them at the same time but um the second thing I wanted to ask was you know your your your, your altercation at the times <laughs> um you know it's um because it, it, it speaks what it does like what it does I mean it speaks to your nature as somebody who wants to stand up for things because if you say like you know you you went you you know these people that were mean to me at school because if you're my stepdad or was they want to know my brothers and they want they they think we're cool, you know the you know being at the um you know being in government and doing the work that you were doing and um you know and like having to you know and being kind of like pushed away from that because you know all of these different things that you're doing you're standing up for the things that you find that need to be stood up for as somebody who you know, looks, quote-unquote, the way you do and kind of has the experiences that you do and the perspective that you can push and the access that you have. Um, so tell, us, tell me about the what happened with The Times and um, and the column that you were writing, if you don't mind speaking about it. I don't mind speaking about it at all. Um, I, I had a column in The Times Educational Supplement for four years every week, and it was brilliant because... The Times Educational Supplement is, of course, predominantly read by teachers. So I'm reporting mm. from the front line, you know, what I'm hearing and seeing on the ground in schools related to, obviously, the, the kind of current affairs of that week, but plugging in directly to the audience who most need to hear that. So it was it was a glorious time. And in, and in many ways, the, the Times Ed was a, a great place to work, I should say. Um, ha- however... Mm, yeah. um, so the, it, the story actually started about six months before I left. I, I wrote a piece uh, about how um, trans, transphobia is just recycled homophobia. And it's exactly the same arguments as in, you know, think of the children. They're too young to learn about this. You'll just confuse them. It's a mental illness. Yeah. You know, all of that. Or, you know, if we if we allow people to identify as a different gender, soon they'll be identifying as a dog. You know, that exactly the same argument was made. If you allow a man to marry a man, pretty soon he'll marry his dog. You know, all of all of those arguments, it's exactly the same, but just yeah. pointed in a different direction. And in the piece I wrote, you know, we, it's like we've learned nothing. And if you're a transphobe, history is not going to remember you fondly. And mm-hmm. my editor said, I'm, I'm really sorry, we can't, we can't print this. And I said, why? And he said, because you're conflating gender and sexuality and they're not the same thing. And I said, well, no, I don't, I don't think sexuality and gender are the same thing. I just think the hatred is the same. 
But yes, nonetheless, um, you know, it was it was during a time where quite a, a few high profile campaigners had left Stonewall for exactly the same reason. And um, mm. so nonetheless, um, the, the piece wasn't printed. And that was the first time I kind of thought, hmm, interesting. And then, because it, it's just so obvious to me that transgender people should be supported. And it never occurred to me that a, a, a publication as liberal as the Times Ed wouldn't be on board with that. And then, um, I think it was last year that um, they printed this edition. And on the front, the, the headline piece was the best way to support transgender students in your school. The piece was written by Debbie Hayton, who is transgender herself, but I can't stress this strongly enough. You know, you know, Manira Mirza, you know, the, do you know about her? She's she's the person that the government have hired to do a report on racial inequality, but she does she doesn't okay, yeah, believe yeah, yeah. in structural yep. racism. Right. So she's she's yeah, a yeah, classic yeah. example of skin folk aren't always kin folk. Right. It's it's the same principle. Debbie Hayton is. Um, trans, but none of her views would suggest that she is trans. Okay, so she yes. uh, she yes. she's a sort of token. Um, so she'd she'd written yeah. it, and she um, had recommended as the best resource for schools an organisation called Transgender Trend, who had produced these mm. packs for schools, um, which you know included things like stickers that said it's not possible for a boy to become a girl and um and we're actually are actually now campaigning against a new proposed law which would make conversion therapy illegal because mm -hmm. their argument is that parents who have gay children will force their gay children to be trans so that they can be in a heterosexual relationship. I'm like, yeah, I'm sure homophobic parents are going to welcome a trans child. Yes, that's how the world works. So they're a terrible organisation. They're actually an anti-trans organisation masquerading as a, a support organisation in order to get into schools. I didn't know anything about this. So the day the, the, the piece hits the shelves, all of my gay mm. trans friends, uh, my phone is ringing off the hook with them going, what the fuck? Yeah, can, sorry, can I swear? Okay, yes. oh, <laughs> so what the fuck? <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm seeing my editor yeah. going, do you know who Transgender Trend are? Do you know who Debbie Hayton is? Like, Because I'm thinking it's been a mistake. And I'm getting back these really carefully worded answers that make me think that my editor thinks that they're going to be viewed by someone else one day. And just saying, we stand by the piece. It's a well-evidenced, well-researched piece. You know, that's all we have to say about it, blah, blah, blah. And that's the moment where it, oh, like, wow, it just okay. clicked. I thought, there's an agenda here. And I can't, I cannot align myself with an organization that would do that. So mm. I resigned. And do, and do you know what? Mm. It's, so I, I wrote this really heartfelt email to both my editor and the big editor at the TES explaining what a privilege and an honor it had been to write for them for the past four years and, and that it was nothing personal, but just that, you know, my reasons and, and the fact that transgender people are hugely vulnerable to mental health issues and to suicide. And it just, it, it just went against everything I stood for. And you know, I hadn't been given an answer. So I was really sorry, but I couldn't carry on. And I just got a two word answer, which was, 
no worries. And I haven't had anything from them since. Wow. Yeah. I can imagine. I can imagine that. Because there's I know that closure is a people say closure is not a not a real thing. You know, it's, it's really it's really in your mind. <laughs> and how you define closure and how you define closure. So it's really noisy <laughs> on the street. Um and how you and how you define closure, um, to be for yourself, but you know, when you when you put in a you know in, put in a shift as much as you have, and the kind of you know that, that would that would be hurtful. So I can imagine, I can imagine. So, and um, but you know, I was talking to my friends about this the other day about you know standing by your standing by your values, and and that's, that's one of the strongest. That's one of the themes that's coming through in the conversation we've had about standing by your values in order for you to make the change that you that you want to make. You know. Um, and I was having this conversation before about just, you know, Black Lives Matter's happening and, you know, a lot of black people are calling for white people to kind of step up and start to kind of, like, speak up and start saying these things. Um, and I still feel the same way about, you know, like, as a black person, and, yeah, I obviously I concur with that statement. But um, so much of the time, a lot of black men in particular, they don't necessarily start speaking up for domestic violence or things that are happening to women as men because it's like there's this dissonance that's just like you know um and then that's kind of something that I've really kind of gotten to um to kind of got into grips with because I'm like you know I can't I can't I, you know I think on the racial front I'm like yeah you know we need to kind of challenge this colorism classism all these different things happening um but also we need to be looking at how we're talking to our boys how like what like the silence around domestic violence sexual violence harassment all of those things we need to be speaking about those things so that we can then have the the right conversations you know when we talk about talking of the right conversations and try to like impact them in the way that we can um and with this, your situation it's like it's challenging the challenging the the, the, the things that the, as you said the systems but also the 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 organizations and the things that aren't kind of shifting in the way that they should be and kind of really outwardly pouring um some kind of change you know and i think that's very important um so keep Thanks. it up we need more of this we need so much more of this but um as a roundup um let me i'm gonna say where's your head at but tell me more about um about where you know guys it's 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 something that natasha has created but what is um tell, tell me about you know where's your head at and then kind of the things that you're doing now and all of that stuff and in, in, just in the phase of life that you're in at the moment. Uh, Where's Your Head At is a joint campaign with myself and Bauer Media who own um, okay. lots of brands that you will have heard of uh, like Grazia, Empire, Empire. yeah, um, yeah. Heat, yeah. Uh, Kiss FM. They're, they're, yeah, they're big. Yeah, they're yeah. a big media organisation. And big, yeah. um, at the centre of the campaign is an ask around a law change. So we, we want to try and make it law that in every workplace there needs to be equal provision for physical and mental health first aid. If you have a person at work who knows what to do if you faint or cut your finger, you should also have a person at work who knows what to do if you're having a panic attack or if you're exhibiting symptoms of depression. And it's not meant to be a substitute for medical care in just the same way as a, as a physical health first aider isn't. It's about first response. And particularly when it comes to mental health, 
it makes sense to me that if the first person at work who you confide in or who notices that you're experiencing mental health difficulties is sympathetic and behaves appropriately, it's going to set you on the path to recovery quicker, I think, probably, than if they're a dick. So so that's the, the kind of <laughs> core of the campaign. But then um, around that, yeah. we've built up um, a whole manifesto of good practice for employers, which lots of big employers like um, WH Smith and Thames Water and Booper have um, signed up to, as well as about 100 MPs from across different parties. So that's great. And then in particular, at the moment, we're looking at, first of all, supporting people through the coronavirus but also specifically how we can support black people with their mental health at the moment. And one of the things I was really shocked to discover when I was trying to find organizations that we could team up with and learn more is how few charities, national charities at least, there are out there which are specifically for black people. And... We found one that's very new called Black Minds Matter, uh, which is if, if you need therapy, they will fund 12 sessions of therapy with a specially selected therapist for you, which I think is, um, yes, yeah. is brilliant. That's a really good use of, of the funding that they get. Um, and we're, we're going to be working with them. We, we're going to hopefully be doing a big research piece on, um, what it is that black and Asian people actually would like to happen. Because I feel certainly that the conversation around race, particularly in the UK mm. where racism is so often very insidious and subtle, is stuck in this, but I don't, you know, people saying, but I don't really feel that we're racist. And so it's stuck in this, are we racist or not conversation. Mm. And racism is something you can measure yeah, you know, it, it absolutely exists. There's lots of studies out there that show that if you have an African name, for example, you're uh, on your CV, you're not called in for an interview. You're 40 times more likely to be stopped and searched if you're a black person than if you're not. You know, it, it's just, it's just a fact. So I'm like, let's park that because it's pointless and let's ask what we can do. Mm. And that's what the, the research piece is aiming to do. So uh, if people want to find more out more about that, it's where's your head at org. Org. Okay, cool. Um, I'll put that in the show notes so people can find all the info and obviously link it back to link it all back to you um, and whatnot. But um, yeah, I think we should round up there. But um, I want to kind of just finish in like three questions. Um, your favorite Disney cartoon character? Ooh. Who is it and why? My favorite. Wow, that's that's big. That's a big question. Um, <laughs> I should have prepared for this. I'm gonna say Nala from The Lion King. Nala from The Lion King. Okay, <laughs> I see. You. I see you. Nineteen. Was it nineteen ninety four or two thousand and nineteen? Oh, nineteen ninety four. Okay. Okay, okay. The original one, the original one. All right. Um, I'm always curious about this next question. It's, it's, what was the first uh, CD record or tape that you remember buying from the shops? Because, yeah, I'm, I'm always talking to my millennials and they go to the shops to buy the singles and the tapes or whatever. So what's the first Wait, one? It was uh, The End of the Road by Boys to Men. 
Right. The, the single. single. The single. Oh, that, yeah. The single. Oh, wow. Okay. 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 <laughs> and the final thing is, um, are you optimistic about what's to come next? Kind of. I, I understand why May You Live in Interesting Times is an old Yiddish curse. <laughs> Um, because um, this would be so interesting if we were studying it in history, but right now it feels like we're stuck in some sort of Orwellian nightmare. But I, you know, the dawn has to follow the darkness. So you can only be optimistic, really, can't you? So yes, is the short answer. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Natasha. Um, where can people find you? And if you want to try. <laughs> Um, on, online please not in real life um, it's natashadevon.com is where you can find out more about my work and if you want to follow me on social media I'm underscore Natasha Devon okay um, and thank you guys so much for listening to me again this week um, you can find me on my only two social media platforms it's Instagram and I'm on Vero uh, which is vero.co forward slash Alex Reads where you can find all of my book recommendations and yeah catch me next week you can drop me an email at tttalkpod at gmail.com don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on Spotify or wherever you find podcasts and have a blessed week